You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Dr Lauren Hammond and I'm lecturing Geography Education here at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're getting involved in IOE's 120th anniversary celebrations, so we're shining a light on the contribution that IOE postgraduate researchers, past and present, make to society through their work. This is also a momentous occasion for those involved with the EDD programmes as it celebrates its 25th year. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Anya McAllister. Anya is lecturing both languages in education and in refugee education, and is also a PhD student here at IOE. Prior to working at IOE, Anya was a modern foreign languages teacher. Anya's recent research includes a seed-funded research project on the experiences of refugees and asylum seekers' access to higher education. This project was funded and supported by the Department of Culture, Communication and Media at IOE. And Anya is now using this research as the basis of a UCL Public Policy Fellowship. In this project, Anya is seeking to develop engagement pathways with policymakers to reduce barriers to higher education for refugees and asylum seekers. These are critically important areas of research in the current global context, where many people are forced to migrate and seek asylum for reasons including conflict and climate change. Hi Anya, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Hi Lauren, thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. It's a great privilege. So Anya, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your work at IOE, but first it'd be really nice to get to know you a little bit more. Could you tell me a little about how you got into working in education and your background in the field? Yes, certainly. So I, I have had occasion to think about this often over the years. And I suppose I am the child of immigrant parents. I was an immigrant myself to Australia and a line, we're going to be talking about poetry later, and a line that that stays with me all the time and I'm sure one day will develop into a poem is, is that I come from an immigrant line. And so my parents took us to Australia and perhaps uh, learning language was a way for me to explore another culture while experiencing being part of a different culture and a different environment. And I met teachers there who inspired me and who treated me, you know, as if I had uh, some real potential. And, and that has that stayed with me and took me into teaching, in, into languages teaching, which took me into ITE. And then I have had the profound privilege to be able to to work uh, with refugees and asylum seekers. I think I have a, a kind of an empathy for those who are um, in exile and are experiencing exile. No, it's fascinating to hear about how your personal experiences and the kindness and support of your teachers has inspired you to uh, in your own career and also how your personal journey has led you to your research focus as well. I'm fascinated to hear that you're both a lecturer and a PhD student here at IOE. How do you balance and connect those two different roles? So, I mean, I, I think you'll probably agree with me, Lauren, when I say that there is a, a great synergy between the two. And I actually find it very difficult to separate research from teaching 
I'm reminded of a of a of a recent conversation that I had with a with a colleague at Leuven University, um, a senior re- lecturer there, Dr. Jenny Vandera, who talked about together we talked about how that there's a perception of a di- of of a dichotomy between research and teaching when actually and sometimes in higher education there is a, an implicit notion that to move away from teaching towards research is is a mark of transcendence when actually both require the same discipline the same generosity humility and refer- and and reverence and and both are concerned with uncovering what's extraordinary in the in the seemingly ordinary so yeah i f- i find it difficult to think about teaching and research separately for me they're both so interconnected that that's what took me to, uh, to into higher education and it seems obvious to me that i would that i would research while i teach no, that's fascinating. And we've taken similar routes in that we both work in IT and we've both studied the doctorates um, part-time whilst we've been teaching. And I think I completely agree with you that there is a really important intersection and relationships between research and teaching. I love a quote from Bell Hooks that says, genuine learning like love is always mutual. And I feel uh, like I learn from my students all the time. So could you tell me a little bit about what the, the Reconnect programme is? Well, I think that the quote that you've just that you've just used, um, could you just repeat it for me there, Lauren? Genuine learning, like love, is always mutual. Yeah, and so that you know uh, that really is the essence of what happens in on the Reconnect program. You know, I have like I firmly believe that that I go into the classroom every term um, with with Reconnect students and we learn together because I have the privilege of on the Reconnect program, and I, I'll get to the to the specifics in, in a moment. I'll working with people who are profoundly more knowledgeable than me they have at the moment in the current iteration you know there are judges lawyers comparative literature lecturers teachers engineers there are people who have who are refugees or are seeking refugee status with phenomenal experience and qualifications and they come to the reconnect program because they're seeking access to higher education at a level commensurate with their experience. The Reconnect program was initiated and is funded by a, a charity called Reconnect. The director is called um, Theodros Abraham, and it's, it's just a fantastic organization which seeks to support all refugees and asylum seekers into higher education. But inevitably, the issue is that th- there is a structural and even a sectoral refusal or inability to recognize this experience and these qualifications that people come to the Reconnect program with. So in effect, I'm teaching people who are seeking access to postgraduate, largely postgraduate education, but not always, and even sometimes PhDs. So the Reconnect program hopes to, seeks to, tries to help mitigate some of those barriers. It sounds like it's really important and like potentially life-changing work that you're doing there. Could you talk to me a little bit about why access to higher education is so important and about some of the barriers that refugees and asylum seekers face when trying to access higher education? Well, I mean, there is a, a you know, a breadth of research which recognises that regaining access to higher education and or re-establishing oneself professionally is key to integrating oneself into a new life. And so then, you know, it, it's not a surprise then that many refugees and asylum seekers see access to, to higher education as very, very, very important for them in re-establishing themselves. 
Unfortunately, there are so many implicit and, and explicit barriers, one of which I have just, I, I think I have already referred to, and that is a structural inability to recognize existing qualifications. And that can represent itself in ways such as perhaps it's a teacher, for example, with years experience of teaching and teaching through English and perhaps even having a master's degree, not uh, having difficulty accessing a PGCE because they don't have a GCSE in English, where they may very well, if their, if their application was assessed in a different way, have all the necessary skills and attributes to complete a PGCE. Or perhaps there are situations in which someone's studies have been interrupted because they've had to seek to, to flee uh, their, their country of origin. And the way in which their certification is, is assessed perhaps indicate that they failed rather than have had their, their studies interrupted. And, and you can imagine that if you've completed three and a half years of a four-year degree, you don't want to go back to the beginning and nor should you have to go back to the beginning of those studies. But to find a way in so that you don't have to go back to the beginning of those studies is very difficult. The other thing then that's very difficult is, uh, is funding. Um, and, and the length of time that it takes um, someone to, uh, to have their asylum-seeking application assessed so that they can be given refugee status, so that they have access to, to student finance, that's, you know, that, that, that can take a really long time. And, and that can take two years or, or longer. And you can just imagine the impact on a person's mental health and well-being, having to wait um, all that time, not being allowed to work, not not being able to access education, um, it's you know it's, it's a significant barrier. The other thing then is even to find a way around the the system in, in which you can access funding. Um, it, it's not a straightforward process where s- certain scholarships are available to different categories, people who are in different categories. And it's really a, a maze to navigate. Thank you, Anya. Thank you for highlighting these systemic and everyday barriers that refugees and asylum seekers face. This is clearly critically important work, which potentially changes people's lives. So now I'm going to talk to you a little bit more, I think, about the methods that you use. So I'm interested that your work involves applied ethnopoetic analysis, and I have to confess that I'd not heard of that before. So it would be really great if you could talk to us about what this means and how you became interested in this method. So I came to applied ethnopoetic analysis through my interest in in both poetry and language and social, social justice and the idea that language is, to draw on Jan Blomhardt, that language is a resource which is is unequally distributed. And expectations that we have about the way in which language is produced is often exclusionary and it silences people who are already marginalized. Using dialogue as a tool, ethnopoetic analysis can be applied to look for the poetics that are inherent in the stories that people tell. And so when you use the applied ethnopoetic analysis method, you can uncover stories, you can uncover, you can uncover what people really want to say in a way in which the opposite happens if you apply normative expectations around the way people should speak or the way people should write. 
and further silence their stories whenever you apply the the kind of researcher's interpretation onto a story. So uh, applied ethnopoetics works in the opposite direction, I suppose, trying to uncover and strip away norms to look for the features that are inherent in the language that people are using, the poetic features. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It sounds fascinating. And um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why you chose to explore refugees' experiences through applied ethnopoetic analysis and poetry, and how you did that. Well, first of all, if I could just if I could just differentiate between applied ethnopoetic analysis as a research method and the other really important strand of my research, which is critical poetic inquiry as a pedagogical tool. So yes, I use applied ethnopoetic analysis to analyze the um, narratives that have arrived out of dialogic exchanges with refugees and asylum seekers. But I also use dialogue with my students so that together we can elicit poetry that they are the authors of. Um, So there are two strands to my research and both of them, I'll, I'll get directly to your question now. Both of them are concerned with language as a tool for both, or how language can, dismantling language as a tool for for, in a, for perpetuating inequality. And that's what applied ethnopoetic analysis does. And that's what poetry does too, because it, it allows the voices to be amplified where they would otherwise be silenced. And so using this with refugees is obviously really and important. Yeah, particularly important because they are so margin, you know, that they experience such barriers which marginalize them and power structures which attempt to silence them. I think that if you, anyone who reads the recent output, preliminary output from the Seeking Access Project will understand why I say attempts to silence them because what really comes out there is agency and tenacity and I didn't add anything to the narratives. I didn't take anything away from them. I just used ethnopoetic analysis to arrange them on the page. And so the eloquence and the emotiveness of the language that reveals that tenacity and that agency. Could you talk to me a little bit about the impact of the work so far and where you hope to go with it next? Yes. Again, going back to that crossover and and the the synthesis between research and teaching for me you know the the pedagogical impact that I have and that my students have on me I really want to emphasize that is where you know there's been a lot of power I think in those in those classrooms generated between us as a as a kind of micro learning community using dialogue to elicit ethnographic poetry and that has led that work along with the seeking access output, which is a result of applied ethnopoetic analysis, that work has allowed me to make connections with other institutions um, that I will visit and that I will share my my methods with. But it it has also led me to the to the public policy fellowship that you mentioned. And what I hope to be able to do is to develop engagement pathways that can actually, you know, make a difference to reducing some of these barriers and allowing the exceptional people that I work with to access higher education at the level that they that their accomplishments that they deserve. To finish off with then, why do you think it's important that poetic poetry and um, applied ethnopoetic analysis has a place in higher education? So I you know I think that the these other forms 
in higher education are, are an act of resistance and and acknowledgement of the fact that there are other valid ways to convey what one knows other than conventional um, academic forms. And I think that allowing space for the perspectives of people who have been othered is particularly important in intercultural work. I think that when we allow a range of voices to enter the centre and and not be silenced in the margins, then we expand everybody's perspectives. And I think that, that forms such as poetry allow for emotive and profound connections which can you know, have a wider reach and then in that way increase um, the capacity for impact for those who want to work to combat um, marginalisation. Before we end, I'd like to share a poem that was written out of a, a, an experience working with women in a refugee camp and was, is the poetic arrangement of, um, of dialogic utterances in a, poet, in a poetry workshop with them. Um, it's called Three Memories of Kurdistan. When I am sad, I remember the beach. I watch the boats move on the water, clouds light in summer sky. I watch the rising and the setting of the sun. In springtime in Kurdistan, we go to the mountain. There are flowers, trees, and figs. I remember my father. He puts his arms out and says, come here. My father is good and beautiful. Now I'm happy when I help my child write his name. That poem has actually been set to music as well in separate move- movements by a choral composer called Chris Hutchings, and it can be the score can be downloaded and used for free and has in fact been performed by choirs as part of his hashtag Choirs Against Racism initiative. And it's, uh, yeah, it's free to, for use and uh, for to be performed nationally or internationally in support of refugees and asylum seekers to combat racism. Thank you so much for that suggestion, Anya, and for, and for reading that poem. It's really brought to life the importance of this work and what a profound and moving way of ending the podcast. I've also loved hearing about the value of applied ethnopoetic analysis and critical poetic inquiry in research. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lauren. You can follow Anya on Twitter at Anya underscore McAllister to learn more about her research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, we have an archive of 14 past seasons for you to listen to. Search IOE podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from to find episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from IOE. I'm Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me on Research for the Real World. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 